Your listenership is so important to us. We really do hope you're enjoying the show. If you're able to leave a review on Apple Podcasts, it would be enormously helpful in allowing us to reach more people and help them get a good night's sleep. So is following us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and any other podcast player that you use. Thank you so much for your support. Good evening. Welcome to Send Me to Sleep, the world's sleepiest podcast. I'm your host, Andrew. I'm here to help calm your mind and send you into a peaceful night's sleep. Tonight, I'll be reading three short stories from Just So Stories by Rudyard Kipling. So let your eyes fall heavy and your breath soften as we settle in for a peaceful night's sleep. How the Camel Got His Hump Now this is the next tale, and it tells how the camel got its big hump. In the beginning of years, when the world was so new and all, and the animals were just beginning to work for man, There was a camel, and he lived in the middle of a howling desert because he did not want to work, and besides, he was a howler himself. So he ate sticks and thorns and tamarisks and milkweed and prickles, most Scruciating idle, and when anybody spoke to him, he said, Hump, just hump, and no more. Presently, the horse came to him on Monday morning with a saddle on his back and a bit in his mouth, and said, Camel. Oh, camel, come out and trot like the rest of us. Hump, said the camel, and the horse went away and told the man. Presently the dog came to him with a stick in his mouth and said, Camel, oh, camel, come and fetch and carry like the rest of us. Humph, said the camel, and the dog went away and told the man. Presently the ox came to him with the yoke on his neck and said, Camel, oh camel, come and plough like the rest of us. Humph, 
said the camel, and the ox went away and told the man. At the end of the day, the man called the horse and the dog and the ox together and said, Three, oh three, I'm very sorry for you, with the world so new and all. But that hump thing in the desert can't work, or he would have been here by now. So I am going to leave him alone, and you must work double time to make up for it. That made the three very angry, with the world so new and all, and they held a palaver, and an indaba, and a panchayat, and a powwow on the edge of the desert, and the camel came chewing on milkweed, most scruciating idol and laughed at them. Then he said humph, and went away again. Presently there came along the Dijin in charge of all deserts, rolling in a cloud of dust. Dijins always travel that way, because it is magic. And he stopped to palaver and powwow with the three. Dijin of all deserts, said the horse, is it right for anyone to be idle with the world so new and all? Certainly not, said the Dijin. Well, said the horse, There's a thing in the middle of your howling desert, and he's a howler himself, with a long neck and long legs, and he hasn't done a stroke of work since Monday morning. He won't trot. Woo, said the Dijin, whistling. That's my camel. For all the gold in Arabia, what does he say about it? He says, humph, said the dog, and he won't fetch and carry. Does he say anything else? Only humph, and he won't plough, said the ox. Very good said the Dijin. I'll hump him if you will kindly wait a minute. The Dijin rolled himself up in his dust cloak and took a bearing across the desert and found the camel most scruciatingly idle, looking at his own reflection in a pool of water. My long and bubbling friend, said the Dijin, what's this I hear of your doing no work with the world so new and all? Humph, said 
the camel. The Dijin sat down with his chin in his hand and began to think a great magic while the camel looked at his own reflection in the pool of water. You've given the three extra work ever since Monday morning, all on account of your scruciating idleness, said the Dijin, and he went on thinking magics with his chin in his hand. Humph, said the camel. I shouldn't say that again if I were you, said the Dijin. You might say it once too often. Bubbles, I want you to work. And the camel said, Hump, again. But no sooner had he said it than he saw his back that he was so proud of puffing up and puffing up into a great big lolloping hump. Do you see that? said the Dijin. That's your very own hump that you've brought upon your very own self by not working. Today is Thursday, and you've done no work since Monday. When the work began, now you are going to work. How can I, said the camel, with this hump on my back? That's made a purpose, said the Dijin, all because you missed those three days. You will be able to work now for three days without eating, because you can live on your hump, and don't you ever say I never did anything for you. Come out of the desert and go to the three, and behave, hump yourself. And the camel humped himself, hump and all, and went away to join the three. And from that day to this, the camel always wears a hump. We call it a hump now, not to hurt his feelings. But he has never yet caught up with the three days that he missed at the beginning of the world and he has never yet learned how to behave. How the Rhinoceros Got His Skin Once upon a time, on an uninhabited island on the shores of the Red Sea, there lived a Parsi from whose hat the rays of sun were reflected in more than oriental splendour. And the Parsi lived by the Red Sea, with nothing but his hat and his knife, 
and a cooking stove of the kind you must particularly never touch. And one day he took flour and water and currants and plums and sugar and things and made himself one cake which was two feet across and three feet thick. It was indeed a superior comestible, that's magic, and he put it on stove because he was allowed to cook on the stove, and he baked it and he baked it till it was all done, brown and smelt, most sentimental. But just as he was going to eat it, there came down to the beach from the altogether uninhabited interior one rhinoceros with a horn on his nose, two piggy eyes, and a few manners. In those days, the rhinoceros's skin fitted him quite tight. There were no wrinkles in it anywhere. He looked exactly like a Noah's Ark rhinoceros, but of course much bigger. All the same, he had no manners then, and he has no manners now, and he never will have any manners. He said, How? And the Parsi left that cake and climbed to the top of a palm tree with nothing on but his hat, from which the rays of the sun were always reflected in more than oriental splendour. And the rhinoceros upset the olive stove with his nose, and the cake rolled on the sand, and he spiked that cake on the horn of his nose, and ate it and went away, waving his tail to the desolate and exclusively uninhabited interior which abuts on the islands of Mazandaran, Socotra, and Promontories of the larger equinox. Then the Parsi came down from his palm tree and put the stove on its legs and recited the following sloka, which, as you have not heard, I will now proceed to relate. Them that takes cakes, which the Parsi man bakes, makes dreadful mistakes, and there was a great deal more in that than you would think, because five weeks later there was a heat wave in the Red Sea, and everybody took off all the clothes they had. The Parsi took off his hat, but the rhinoceros took off his skin, 
and carried it over his shoulder as he came down to the beach to bathe. In those days, it buttoned underneath with three buttons and looked like a waterproof. He said nothing whatever about the Parsi's cake, because he had eaten it all, and he never had any manners, then, since, or henceforward. He waddled straight into the water and blew bubbles through his nose, leaving his skin on the beach. Presently, the Parsi came by and found the skin, and he smiled one smile that ran all round his face two times. Then he danced three times round the skin and rubbed his hands. Then he went to his camp and filled his hat with cake crumbs, for the Parsi never ate anything but cake, and never swept out his camp. He took that skin, and he shook that skin, and he scrubbed that skin, and he rubbed that skin just as full of old, dry, stale, tickling cake crumbs, and some burned currants, as it ever could possibly hold. Then he climbed to the top of his palm tree and waited for the rhinoceros to come out of the water and put it on. And the rhinoceros did. He buttoned it up with the three buttons and it tickled like cake crumbs in bed. Then he wanted to scratch, but that made it worse. Then he lay down on the sand and rolled and rolled and rolled, and every time he rolled the cake crumbs tickled him worse and worse and worse. Then he ran to the palm tree and rubbed and rubbed and rubbed himself against it, but he rubbed so much and so hard that he rubbed his skin into a great fold over his shoulders, and another fold underneath where the buttons used to be, but he rubbed the buttons off, and he rubbed some more folds over his legs, and it spoiled his temper, but it didn't make the least difference to the cake crumbs. They were inside his skin, and they tickled. So he went home, very angry indeed, and horribly scratchy. And from that day to this, every rhinoceros has great folds in his skin, and a very bad temper, all on account of the cake crumbs inside. But the Parsi came down from his palm tree, wearing his hat, from which the rays of the sun reflected in more than oriental splendour, packed up his cooking stove, 
and went away in the direction of Oratavo, Amiglada, and upland meadows of Anatrivo, and the marshes of Sunaput. How the Leopard Got His Spots In the days when everybody started fair, best beloved, the leopard lived in a place called the High Veld. Remember it wasn't the Low Veld, or the Bush Veld, or the Sour Veld, but the exclusively bare, hot, shiny High Veld, where there was sand and sandy-coloured rock, and exclusively tough of sandy yellowish grass. The giraffe and the zebra and the eland and the kadoo and the heart beast lived there, and they were exclusively sandy yellow-brownish all over. But the leopard, he was the exclusivest sandiest yellowish brownness of the moor, a greyish, yellowish, cat-shaped kind of beast, and he matched the exclusively yellowish, greyish, brownish colour of the high veld to one hair. This was very bad for the giraffe and the zebra and the rest of them, for he would lie down by a exclusively yellowish, greyish, brownish stone, or clump of grass, and when the giraffe, or zebra, or eland, or the kadoo, or the bushbuck, or the bontybuck came by, he would surprise them out of their jumpsome lives. He would indeed. And also, there was an Ethiopian with bows and arrows, exclusively greyish, brownish, yellowish man he was then, who lived on the high veld with the leopard, and the two used to hunt together. The Ethiopian with his bows and arrows, and the leopard exclusively with his teeth and claws, till the giraffe and the eland and the kadoo and the quagga and all the rest of them didn't know which way to jump, best beloved. They didn't indeed. After a long time, things lived forever so long in those days. They learned to avoid anything that looked like a leopard or an Ethiopian. And bit by bit, the giraffe began it, because his legs were the longest. They went away from the high veld. They scuttled for days and days and days, till they came to a great forest exclusively full of trees and bushes and stripy, 
speckly, patchy, blatchy shadows, and there they hid. And after another long time, what with standing half in the shade and half out of it, and what with the slippery, slidey shadows of the trees falling on them, the giraffe grew blotchy, and the zebra grew stripy, and the eland and the kadoo grew darker, with little wavy grey lines on their backs, like bark on the tree trunk, and so on. Though you could hear them and smell them, you could very seldom see them. And then only when you knew precisely where to look. They had a beautiful time in the exclusively speckly, spickly shadows of the forest, while the leopard and Ethiopian ran about over the exclusively greyish, yellowish, reddish high veld outside, wondering where all their breakfasts and their dinners and their teas had gone. At last they were so hungry that they ate rats and beetles and rock rabbits, the leopard and the Ethiopian, and then they had the big tummy ache both together, and then they met Bavian, the dog-headed, barking baboon, who is quite the wisest animal in all South Africa. Said Leopard to Bavian, and it was a very hot day, Where has all the game gone? And Bavian winked. He knew, said the Ethiopian to Bavian, Can you tell me the present habitat of the aboriginal fauna? That meant just the same thing, but the Ethiopian always used long words. He was a grown-up, and Bavian winked. He knew. Then said Bavian, The game has gone into another spot, and my advice to you, leopard, is to go into other spots as soon as you can. And the Ethiopian said, That is all very fine, but I wish to know whither the aboriginal fauna has migrated. Then said Bavian, The aboriginal fauna has joined the aboriginal flora because it was high time for a change. And my advice to you, Ethiopian, is to change as soon as you can. That puzzled the leopard and the Ethiopian but they set off to look for the aboriginal flora, and presently, after ever so many days, 
they saw a great, high, tall forest full of tree trunks, all exclusively speckled and sprottled and spottled, dotted and splashed and slashed and hatched and cross-hashed with shadows. Say that quickly aloud, and you will see how very shadowy the forest must have been. What is this? said the leopard, that is so exclusively dark, and yet so full of little pieces of light. I don't know, said the Ethiopian, but it ought to be the aboriginal flora. I can smell giraffe, and I can hear giraffe, but I can't see giraffe. That's curious, said the leopard. I suppose it is because we have come in out of the sunshine. I can smell zebra, and I can hear zebra, but I can't see zebra. Wait a bit, said the Ethiopian. It's a long time since we've hunted them. Perhaps we've forgotten what they were like. Fiddle, said the leopard. I remember them perfectly on the high veld, especially their marrow bones. Giraffe is about seventeen feet high, of exclusively fulvous golden yellow from head to heel and zebra is about four and a half feet high, of exclusively grey fawn colour from head to heel. Um, said the Ethiopian, looking into the speckly spickly shadow of the aboriginal flora forest, then they ought to show up in this dark place like ripe bananas in a smokehouse. But they didn't. The leopard and the Ethiopian hunted all day, and though they could smell them and hear them, they never saw one of them. For goodness sake, said the leopard at tea time, let us wait till it gets dark. This daylight hunting is a perfect scandal. So they waited till dark, and then the leopard heard something breathing stiffly in the starlight that fell all stripy through the branches. And he jumped at the noise, and it smelt like zebra, and it felt like zebra, and when he knocked it down it kicked like zebra, but he couldn't see it, so he said, be quiet, oh you person without any form, I am going to sit on your head till morning, because there is something about you that I don't understand.
Presently he heard a grunt and a crash and a scramble, and the Ethiopian called out, I've caught a thing that I can't see. It smells like giraffe, and it kicked like giraffe, but it hasn't any form. Don't you trust it, said the leopard. Sit on its head till the morning, same as me. They haven't any form, any of them. So they sat down on them hard till bright morning time, and then Leopard said, What have you at your end of the table, brother? The Ethiopian scratched his head and said, It ought to be exclusively a rich, fulvous, orange, tawny from head to heel and it ought to be giraffe, but it is covered all over with chestnut blotches. What have you at your end of the table, brother? And the leopard scratched his head and said, It ought to be exclusively a delicate greyish fawn, and it ought to be zebra but it's covered all over with black and purple stripes. What in the world have you been doing to yourself, Zebra? Don't you know that if you were on the high veil, I could see you ten miles off? You haven't any form. Yes, said the Zebra. But this isn't the high veld, can't you see? I can now, said the leopard, but I couldn't all yesterday. How is it done? Let us up, said the zebra, and we will show you. They let the zebra and the giraffe get up and Zebra moved away to some little thorn bushes where the sunlight fell all stripy, and the giraffe moved off to some tallish trees where the shadow fell all blotchy. Now watch, said the Zebra and the giraffe. This is the way it's done. One, two, three. And where's your breakfast? Leopard stared, and Ethiopian stared, but all they could see were stripy shadows and blotched shadows in the forest, but never a sign of zebra or giraffe. They had just walked off and hidden themselves in the shadowy forest. Hi, hi, said the Ethiopian. That's a trick worth learning. Take a lesson by it, leopard. You show up in this dark place like a bar of soap 
been a coal scuttle. Ho, ho, said the leopard. It would surprise you very much to know that you should show up in this dark place like a mustard plaster on a sack of coals. Well, calling names won't catch dinner, said the Ethiopian. The long and the little of it is that we don't match our backgrounds. I'm going to take the Barvian's advice. He told me I ought to change, and as I've nothing to change except my skin, I'm going to change that. What to? said the leopard, tremorously excited. To a nice, working, blackish-brown colour with a little purple in it, and touches of slaty blue. It will be the very thing for hiding in hollows and behind trees. So he changed his skin then and there, and the leopard was more excited than ever. He had never seen a man change his skin before. But what about me, he said, when the Ethiopian had worked his last little finger into his fine new black skin. You take Barvian's advice too. He told you to go into spot. So I did, said the leopard. I went into other spots as fast as I could. I went into this spot with you, and a lot of good it has done me. Oh, said the Ethiopian. Barvian didn't mean spots in South Africa. He meant spots on your skin. What's the use of that? said the leopard. Think of giraffe, said the Ethiopian. Or if you prefer stripes, think of zebra. They find their spots and stripes give them perfect satisfaction. Hmm, said the leopard. I wouldn't look like Zebra, not forever so. Well, make up your mind, said the Ethiopian, because I hate to go hunting without you, but I must if you insist on looking like a sunflower against a tarred fence. I'll take spots then, said the leopard, but don't make them too vulgar big. I wouldn't look like giraffe, not for ever so. I'll make them the size of the tips of my fingers, said the Ethiopian. 
I'll use the dirt from the forest to paint your skin. And so then, the Ethiopian put his five fingers close together, after dousing them in the mud from the ground of the forest, and pressed them all over the leopard, and wherever the five fingers touched, they left five little black marks, all close together. You can see them on any leopard skin you like, best beloved. Sometimes the fingers slipped, and the marks got a little blurred, but if you look closely at any leopard now, you will see that there are always five spots. Now you are a beauty, said the Ethiopian. You can lie out on the bare ground and look like a heap of pebbles. You can lie out on the naked rocks and look like a piece of pudding stone. You can lie out on a leafy branch and look like sunshine sifting through the leaves. And you can lie right across the centre of a path and look like nothing in particular. Think of that and purr. So they went away and lived happily ever afterward, best beloved. That is all.